0: Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the weekly UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Before we begin, a huge thank you, a really huge thank you, to our five new patrons who've signed up in the last week Preethi Chaparala, Melissa Williams, Eki, SPJ, and Maggie, who will be better known to those of you on Twitter as the Queen of the True Crime podcast, Storm Lightning Bane. For details of how you could further support this show via Patreon, please head to patreon.com forward slash UK True Crime. For today's episode, we go back to December 1986, when the House Martins, featuring a very youthful fat boy Slim, were at number one in the UK music charts with Caravan of Love. If you aren't familiar with it, check out the video, which is, well, anyway, I think we should just quickly move on. In the US, Bon Jovi with You Give Love a Bad Name had just been displaced by Peter Satira and Amy Grant with The Next Time I Fall. And friend of the show on Twitter, at Kim Bassett 8, had just graduated from college. Portsmouth is a city on the south coast of England, 70 miles southwest of London. Most notable for being the place where I was born, it's also known for its maritime heritage and Portsmouth Historic Dockyard. The Dockyard is home to the wooden warship HMS Victory, where Admiral Lord Nelson and 56 of his men died in the Battle of Trafalgar. The Tudor ship Mary Rose is also conserved in a dockyard museum there. If you don't know, the Mary Rose is a warship of the Tudor Navy of King Henry VIII. After serving for 33 years in several wars against France, Scotland and Brittany, and being substantially rebuilt in 1536... She saw her last action on the 19th of July 1545. While leading the attack on the galleys of a French invasion fleet, she sank in the Solent just off the Portsmouth coast. The wreck of the Mary Rose was rediscovered in 1971 and it was raised in 1982 by the Mary Rose Trust in one of the most complex and expensive projects in the history of maritime archaeology. In 1986, Portsmouth was a bustling navy port. This was in the days before the UK government decimated the Navy and when ships were in town, the bars and clubs of Portsmouth were filled with sailors from all over the world. Unbeknown to these visiting sailors, the area known as Buckland, which is adjacent to the docks, had recently seen six vicious sex attacks. This led local media to label the suspect as the beast of Buckland and the police are under intense pressure to find the culprit. Linda Cook was aged 24 She lived in Portsmouth and worked in a bar in the city. She actually lived at the home of Linda Gray in the Buckland area of Portsmouth. Linda Cook had been in a relationship with Gray's son since August 1986 and had moved into the family home at the beginning of November 1986. Linda Gray's son had been remanded to a detention centre in November 1986, and I can't even imagine what that was like in 1986. Look out for my upcoming blog on the hellish state of places in 2017, let alone 86. But Linda Cook had stayed on in the house, waiting for her boyfriend to be released. On the 8th of December 1986, the two Lindas were together from about 10.30am to 3 in the afternoon, when Linda Cook went to collect Linda Gray's daughters from school and give them their tea. Linda Grey next saw her just after 10pm. Linda Cook was in the house with Linda Grey's daughters and a man with whom Linda Grey was having a relationship. At approximately 11.30pm, Linda Cook went to visit a friend just under a mile away in Sultan Road. Shortly after midnight on the 9th of December 1986, she left the friend's house to walk home. But Linda never made it home. Sometime between half past midnight and 1am, she was attacked on her way home at an area of wasteland known locally as Mary Rowe. Linda's partially clothed body was discovered the next morning, just metres from a school playground. Detectives were shocked by the brutality of the ordeal she had suffered. Linda had been raped and strangled, with her assailant stamping upon her several times, and with such force that her jaw and spine were fractured, her larynx was crushed, and the imprints of his right athletic shoe were retained on her abdomen and on her shin. It was a sustained attack, it lasted at least 15 minutes. Pathologists took a number of swabs from her body and forensic examination confirmed the presence of semen from which the blood type of the killer was determined. Trace evidence was also gathered including fibres from beneath Linda's fingernails. The police made a widespread appeal for information and they did a number of areas from which they could focus. One of these was the shoe which left a mark on Linda's body. This imprint had been made by a size 43-45 to right shoe and it had a distinctive tread pattern, including the word flash in the heel area. Between 1983 and 1986, 185,000 pairs were imported into the UK and in 1986 alone, up to 9,000 pairs of shoes with this tread were sold in the UK of which 250 pairs had been sold in Portsmouth. Police were confident that just like in Cinderella, If they could find out who had owned the pair of shoes in question, the mystery would be solved. One of the sailors drinking in the city that night was 18-year-old able seaman Michael Shirley. A local man, he'd followed his dad and his grandad before him into the Navy and he was serving aboard HMS Apollo, which was docked in Portsmouth. On the night of the murder, he'd been to Joanna's nightclub in the Southsea district of Portsmouth. Joanna's had a reputation as a a fun place to go for sailors. Lots of heavy drinking and a place where sailors were able to meet local girls. And in Joanna's, he had met a local girl, Dina Fogg. When the club closed, Dina agreed to take him back to her home in a taxi. After a short journey of around five minutes, they arrived at a residential tower block and Dina said she needed to go and get her child from her mum's, after which she would come back to the taxi. Unbeknown to Shirley, Dina had no intention of spending the night with him and instead left the building by another exit and returned to her nearby home alone. Shirley waited, with growing impatience, until after around about 15 minutes he realised he'd been tricked. So he paid the taxi fare and set off on foot to see if he could find Dina. After around 10 minutes, he gave up on the search and at about 1.25am, he caught a taxi back to the dock and was booked back on board HMS Apollo at one forty-five am Two days later, he was out in the city again when he met Dina by chance. And during a brief conversation, which Dina would say she found intimidating, they discussed the subject of the murder and their close proximity to the murder scene. Dina lived about a quarter of a mile away from where Linda was killed. Following the conversation, Dina felt suspicious and that Shirley was trying to cloud the events of the night, to really make it clear that he couldn't possibly have been in the correct location at the right time to have murdered Linda. The two went their separate ways, and then Shirley headed home to spend Christmas at his parents' home in Leamington Spa in Warwickshire, which is about 130 miles north of Portsmouth. In January 1987, he returned to Portsmouth, from where he was shortly due to sail to the Falkland Islands. On the 5th of January 1987... Just before his ship left the UK, he made another visit to Joanna's. He again bumped into Dina, who'd by this time spoken to police about her suspicions about Shirley. Dina identified him to a police detective as the man she'd been with on the night of the murder, and he was arrested and taken into custody. Later that month, Michael Shirley was charged with the murder of Linda Cook. The trial began on the 18th of January 1988, at Winchester Crown Court before Mr Justice Hutchinson. Police believed that Shirley had been frustrated at being duped by Dina Fogg and had taken out his frustration on Linda Cook. The police had other evidence to support their case as well. Firstly, the shoes. Shirley possessed a pair of size 44 athletic shoes with the same tread and stated that he may have been wearing them on the night of the murder. He stated that he'd purchased them in Portsmouth around October 1986 the semen samples taken from Linda's body provided a match with Shirley's blood group O-positive, although this was a group also shared by 23.3% of the British adult male population. Forensic DNA profiling was available to police investigators at the time of this trial. Alec Jeffrey's DNA fingerprinting, based on multilogus probes, had already been employed initially to eliminate a prime suspect from investigation and, subsequently, to identify and link Colin Pitchfork to two murders. However, DNA profiling could not be undertaken in support of the investigation of Linda Cook's murder since the semen found on swabs taken from her body were, although sufficient to allow blood group analysis, of insufficient volume to permit profiling with the available techniques at the time. There were also scratches. At the time of his arrest, Shirley was examined and found to have healed scratches on his right cheek, his right eyebrow, his collarbone, left shoulder, the right elbow, right forearm, right index finger, left upper arm and left elbow. The prosecution's expert claimed they were about four weeks old, which was within the time frame of the murder. For the defence, a consultant physician testified it was not possible to date the injuries with such accuracy, and Shirley stated that some of them had been received while he was serving in Barbados, in October 1986. The prosecution also relied on a missing 30 minutes, the discrepancy between Dina Fogg's testimony that she believed they'd caught the taxi from Joanna's at just after midnight and she'd arrived home about quarter past, and Shirley's account of the timings. Taking into account Shirley's description of his journey back to HMS Apollo, they maintained that he should have arrived at 01.15, not 01.45. If he had arrived back at 01.45, which he did, they submitted, that would leave 30 minutes unaccounted for, which would have been sufficient time to have carried out the murder. The police also thought he was forcing an alibi. During their second meeting, Dina Fogg got the impression that Shirley was attempting to reinforce his later evidence that they'd left the nightclub very late, which the prosecution described as the beginning of an attempt to concoct an alibi. When giving his statements to the police, He referred to Dina Fogg as Sue, which she had, it later emerged, told him was her name. But the prosecution claimed that he was deliberately concealing his knowledge of the girl's identity in the hope that he would prevent the police from tracing her. Throughout his trial, Shirley insisted he was innocent. His legal team felt that the prosecution case was weak, relying just on circumstantial evidence and the testimony of Dina Fogg, and they doubted very much that he would be convicted. On the 28th of January, the jury retired at 10.08am with strong hints that the judge wanted a verdict that day. Later the afternoon, at 442 they returned with their decision. Guilty. Michael Shirley was sentenced to life imprisonment. Shirley's legal team immediately planned their appeal but an application for leave to appeal against the conviction was rejected on the 4th of May 1989. The judge who turned down the application... Sir David Croom Johnson, maintained that there were no lingering doubts over the question of Shirley's guilt. Shirley strongly protested his innocence. He staged a rooftop protest and only came down after the prison authorities agreed to listen to the journalist, Neil Humber, to talk to him. Neil Humber was a journalist back in Leamington Spa who had become interested in this case and he was anything but convinced by his guilt. Humber's doubts increased when he examined the statements of Dina Fogg he said I finally got to her original statement, and the time discrepancies were horrendous. A crucial thirty minutes when she initially claimed to be with Shirley, and which accounted for his whereabouts when Linda Cook was murdered, had somehow evaporated in her final statement. Humber burrowed deeper into the case. He travelled to Portsmouth, tracing and retracing the routes taken on the night, seeking out key witnesses. It's a measure of how immersed he became that he chose to take his family on holiday near Portsmouth. While his wife and son were shopping, he was out sleuthing. In 1992, Shirley spent five weeks on hunger strike to draw public attention to his case. After 42 days, he was in a desperate state, just 24 hours from falling into a coma and threatening to stop taking liquids. But after talks with Shirley's MP, the Home Office agreed possibly to review the case if they were given new evidence in a coherent form. At this news, Shirley came off his hunger strike and it fell upon Humber to provide this evidence. Humber, who was due to attend a course with his work, was told by his employees that he would be dismissed if he instead took the time off to write the report. However, he duly prepared a 49-page report which was passed the authorities and then he was fired by his paper. With regard to the evidence, Hampshire Constabulary, they cover Portsmouth, said These matters have been passed to the Chief Constable of Hampshire and a further report will be submitted to the Home Office when these aspects have been inquired into. Shirley Solicitor said he was disturbed that the same force that had carried out the initial investigation and a further inquiry last summer was being given this task. Shirley's campaign suffered numerous setbacks in persuading the authorities to re-examine fresh evidence. It was also hampered by Hampshire Constabulary's poor handling of evidence after the trial. Advances in DNA profiling could have demonstrated his innocence and he consistently asked that DNA tests be carried out. But the police wouldn't do so. They claimed that none of the evidence or swabs had been retained and that much of it had been destroyed six months after the trial. Eventually, in 2001, the police admitted that they'd found a slide taken from one of the swabs in a drawer, of all things. And in 2002, they managed to find further clothing evidence. Speaking in June 2002, James Plaskett, who was the MP for Shirley at the time, said, This long delay has imposed an intolerable strain on Michael and his family. The system failed in the original trial, and has been decidedly sluggish in helping him clear his name. Michael Shirley completed the recommended 15 years of his life sentence, but he was still refused parole because he kept on protesting his innocence, and therefore he was regarded as having failed to address his offending. It's just incredible to think that this could have happened. Finally, on the 29th of June 2003... Michael Shirley's case reached a court of appeal. Advances in DNA technology allowed the discovered DNA from Linda Cook to be tested, which of course showed that Michael Shirley was unlikely to have been the man who murdered Linda Cook. Essentially, his DNA profile coincided with only one thin band on the DNA readout. He shared that characteristic with one in three members of the population at large. The other bands pointed to someone else. After being in prison from age 18 to 34, his conviction was quashed and Michael Shirley was released from custody, a free man. This was the first time that a UK court had overturned a previous conviction following consideration of new DNA evidence on appeal. His case also represented the first occasion in which the Criminal Cases Review Commission had supported a successful appeal founded on the potential relevance of newly available DNA evidence. Other evidence relied on at the original trial was also found to be defective, almost laughably defective. The blood on his clothing and the scratches on his face that police said had been made by Linda during the struggle helped convict him. It later emerged the blood was his and his cuts were old. Examination of Linda's body had also shown that her long fingernails were unbroken, suggesting that she did not scratch her attacker. And no trace evidence was found beneath the nails to link her with Shirley. The jury were not told this. As for the missing half an hour that was uncovered by by Humber, Dina Falk had given two statements to the police and in the first she'd said she left the nightclub of Shirley around about midnight 30, placing Shirley well away from the scene when Linda was killed and corroborating his account of the evening. The jury were not told about this first statement and it later emerged that her second statement had been made under some duress She'd been in the police station for 10 hours, was concerned for her baby and her mother was standing outside calling for her. The logbook of the taxi driver who took them from the nightclub recorded that he'd made a pre-booked pickup at midnight 15 and he did not arrive at the taxi rank where he collected Shirley and Dina until midnight 25 and this logbook was not produced at the trial. As for the shoes that were so prominent in the case... They were 130 miles away, at his parents' house in Leamington Spa, on the night that Linda Cook was murdered. After his release, Michael Shirley said, I would love to meet the jury now, and very gently, ask them what convinced them to convict me, and whether they would now. It's like crying in the dark when there's no one there to hear you. You just sit there, knowing you're innocent, asking why people don't believe you, and it's very, very hard. I can't say for definite anybody went out with any malicious attempt to stitch me up. Somewhere there is someone who has got away with murder, and for all we know they've murdered again. The killer is still free. They've got the wrong man, and they've got to live with that. Someone should be held responsible, but I'll probably never get to the bottom of it. I think I owe Neil Humber my life. He and my family are the reasons why all this came to light and justice was finally done. He was like a bull terrier. He grabbed hold of it and wouldn't let go. How he sought out all the facts was absolutely amazing. What's even more amazing is those facts were there to be discovered. So, Hampshire police, why weren't they looking objectively at the facts to actually find out who'd committed the crime? Despite the case being reopened in 2003 and fresh appeals being made over the years, Nobody's ever been charged with the murder of Linda Cook. Nor was anybody ever convicted for the six rapes leading up to her murder. So, who did kill Linda? In 2016, now retired detective Chris Clark claimed to have no evidence about her death. He's an expert in cold case reviews and has worked on a number of high profile cases. He blames serial rapist and killer Paul Taylor, who's now 63, and serving life for the murder of 22-year-old Sally McGrath in 1979. At the time, Taylor lived in Cambridgeshire, near woods where Sally's body was buried. He escaped justice for decades, but was finally jailed for the killing and three other rapes in 2012. In between, Taylor led a double life with his wife and children, and ended up living in Fareham, Hampshire, which is very close to Portsmouth. Clark believes a pattern of rapes and Linda's murder have the hallmarks of Taylor's crimes. He said, The killing of Sally McGrath was preceded by a series of rapes he committed. We now know that Taylor escalated his attacks from sexual assaults to the murder of a young woman. In the unsolved case of Linda Cook there are many similarities and Taylor lived just a few miles away. I believe there is strong evidence linking him to her murder. And photo fits issued at the time show an uncanny resemblance to a young Taylor. Clark said, It took 30 plus years to bring Taylor to justice for the murder of Sonny McGraw. It's inconceivable to think he did not commit offences after he raped and killed and was not caught. But, so far, no one has been charged with Linda's murder. As we've heard today, this is a disturbing case which left one person dead and another of their liberty taken away for 16 years and their life in tatters. Looking at the evidence now, it's clear that Michael Shirley should never have been convicted. Neil Humber spoke about the circumstances that can lead to these miscarriages of justice, saying, Once all lines of inquiry have hit dead ends, once obvious suspects have been ruled out through either DNA or alibi, find the patsy and fit the crime around him or her. In other words, once a new person of interest, especially if known to them, comes onto the radar, throw all you've got at him in the hope that some will stick. Sadly, and all too often in miscarriages of justice, it's this blinkered approach that leads to the wrong person being found guilty of the crime. This is not what you might call a fit-up or police framing an individual. Rather, it's sheer desperation and, of course, pressure from above to get evidence to make a charge the Crown Prosecution Service feel they can prosecute. As for Michael Shirley, what's happened to him since his release? We can't even imagine what it must have been like to be freed after all those years of being inside for a crime we hadn't committed. And when he was released, he was still a relatively young man in his early 30s. I understand that soon after his release, he was working for multinational company Boots as a security guard, but I haven't researched his story since then. You just hope that he's managed to rebuild some sort of a life. I'd like to know much more about what happened to him, but I think that's material for another podcast. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please subscribe to the show if you can and write us a review, preferably one with five stars, and head over to our website at uktruecrime.com and see what we're getting up to over there. That's it for now. See you next week. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Ooh-hoo, we're heating up, fam! He just can't miss tonight. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more. Only on FanDuel. On New customers bet five dollars, get two hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel.